0: How about now? There we go. Okay. Uh, That song is quite simple, but oh, how profound it is that the Logos loves us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I come before you today only because of the love of Jesus, which was displayed for us on the cross. Father, help us to realize we never graduate beyond Jesus loves me, but we need that constant reminder As we walk in Christ's likeness. For how easily forget the basis by which we are loved, which is not our works, but Christ's work. So, Father, I pray today, Lord, that you would edify your saints, that you would bring glory to your name through the preaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you want the job, you're going to have to prove you're the best. Of the best, the greatest of the great. For instance, if you want to be an astronaut for NASA, you can't just be good, you've got to be great. How great? Not only do you have to pass a demanding physical have to be in the top of your class with stellar grades and be very highly proficient at mathematics, which I'm out right there. Uh, But you also have to beat out hundreds of thousands of applicants and your odds of doing so, I looked it up, it's a 12 million to one odds of making the cut for NASA. And so to become an astronaut, you'll have to show your greatness over others through your physical and intellectual achievements. Now, maybe you've got the physicality part down, but not so much with the intellectual. So, you know, you're not the sharpest tool in the shed. So instead, you decide that you're going to prove your greatness in the arena of sports. But to do that, not only do you need a great work ethic as you hit the gym and practice over and over, you're going to have to be an absolute genetic monster right? So, because if you're five feet tall, I hate to break it to you kids, if that's all the taller you get, you're not going to become an NFL linebacker. I don't care how many times you watch the movie Rudy, it's not going to happen. The truth is, the chances of becoming a professional player for the NFL is actually, and I got to get the zeros right here, 0.0001%, and that's out of just the high school players. Uh, So, it's... It's not happening better find different different career kits all right so the point though is if you're going to become a great nfl player you're going to have to show your greatness over others how through your goliath-like physical superiority now maybe you're not very smart and maybe you're not very strong but you've always had an absolutely great smile. You love wearing new clothes and having your picture taken. Well, the good news for you is you. there might be a job for you as a model. But to become a famous and successful model, you first have to win the lottery. And I'm not talking about the Powerball. I'm talking about the genetic lottery. And Because you can't be too tall, not too short, not too big, not too small. This sounds like Goldilocks. And if you think you're going to fit the bill here to become a model, you're going to have to also show your vast, superior, physical looks greatness over all of the rest of us. Now, maybe you're not too smart, not very strong. And when it comes to good looks, bless your heart, but you've got Leah's weak-in-the-eyes problem going on. But maybe you have a beautiful voice. And so you've decided to use that voice as a professional singer. But even if you've got a great voice, that's not going to cut it. Because in the end, and now there's way more zeros here, it's, it's, the chances of becoming a professional singer are 0.0000002%. Give it up. <laughs> but there's still a chance, right? Uh, So if you're going to make it as a professional singer, you're going to have to show your greatness over all others with your beautiful voice. When it comes to greatness, we live in a world that measures greatness how? By the externals. By what you can put forth on the outside, what you can demonstrate in terms of skill or whatever the things we just looked at, that has to be greater than everybody else's. That's how we measure it. We measure greatness by comparing the greatness we have compared to the greatness of others to see how we measure up. In church, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us a shocking truth about how greatness works in God's eyes. And it's not the measurement of the world's standard for greatness, not even close. For true greatness in God's eyes is found in three very different things. And here's here's what they are. True greatness understands the character of greatness, the path of greatness, and finally third, the walk of greatness. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 18 and follow along with me. We're going to look at the first four verses this morning. This is about what I'm normally used to cutting off for, for passage lengths. We've had some longer ones lately, but so we're right back at home here with just four verses. So we're going to look at verse one to start. I'll give you a second to turn your Bibles, sir. Verse One at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, "Who is the greatness? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, when it comes to man 's perspective on greatness, we all instinctively measure it, as we just said a minute ago, by our greatness compared to others, our superior greatness to others. See, we recognize that there is levels of greatness in everybody, and so the greatest of the great are those who have higher levels of greatness and if you think about it, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. It doesn't matter what area of life that we're looking at. There's always the in group and always the out group, the ins and the outs. It's in every aspect of life, life. whether it be the good parents who educate their kids the good way or the bad parents who don't, or it's the hard workers in your work environment versus the lazy ones. Like you guys instinctively recognize this, right? It's like, oh, those people are lazy. They don't if you want to get something done you got to come to me and maybe these two right that's how it works we always draw lines with the ins and the outs this happens in school the smart students versus the not so smart students the healthy people who eat right and exercise versus the unhealthy people who don't and the point is we are all trying to show our greatness through our superiority over others. And we will find the most ridiculous ways to do this, especially if your last name's Broom and you grew up with this hyper-competitiveness, right? It's like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty competitive. Oh, no, no, I'm way more competitive than you are. You know, that kind of thing, right? So we, this shows up, this competitive nature shows up in every aspect of life, even for those who aren't competitive. And this jockeying for position is ingrained into every aspect of human society. Which means it also is ingrained into religion. And that absolutely includes Christianity. For even within Christ church, it doesn't take long for the lines to be drawn between the ins and the outs. You know what I'm talking about. If you've been around church at all, you know that there is this, the, you know, the ruling class kind of group, right? Like those are, those are the real Christians, like the super Christians here. And these are the you know, kind of not so ones. That's how it works. The great and the not-so-great is how we draw these lines within the church. But the lines we draw tend to be man's lines that are based upon external qualities. They're not lines that are based upon God and his lines, which are based upon internal qualities. Does that make sense? We draw them based upon the external qualities that we value, but those aren't God's. They're totally different. What kind of external manly, man-made lines do we draw? How about fashion lines? You ever been to a church where there's clear fashion lines that you don't cross? Okay? Uh, sometimes it, it shows up like this. Did you see what so-and-so wore at a church today? Can you believe they thought it was okay to wear sandals? Now, if you wear socks with your sandals, we gotta talk, but you get the idea here, right? Like, it's a no-no-go for some people. It's like, you wear shorts and sandals, that's not all right. All right? And boom, right there, Some of you look shocked, like, wait, you can't wear socks with sandals? No, you can't. Um, Go for it. Who cares? They weren't. But the point is, we've established our great... I think I just did the same thing I'm preaching against. But anyways, the point is, we establish our greatness by comparing ourselves with the smallness of others. And before we move on beyond this, if you're here saying, well, I don't do that. I I just show up in my PJs, basically. Well, you know what? You aren't exempt from this problem either. You're not off the hook yet. For just as we can judge someone for dressing down, can't we also judge somebody for dressing up? Absolutely we can. You you think that person thinks they're holier than everybody else because they wore a suit on Sunday? She wore a dress. What does she think? Doesn't she know? Don't they know that God looks on the inside, not the outside? Man, they must be Pharisees. Boom, lines are drawn, right? We absolutely do this stuff on both sides of the ins and the outs. I started adding up all the different ways that we do this as Christians. i got to be honest, I had to stop because I don't know what number comes after a trillion. I really don't know. My kids would probably know, but I have no idea. Some of you know. And I don't have time here to obviously list all of the trillions and trillions of examples so I'm just going to give us a few. How about Bible translations? Do we ever draw lines over Bible translations? How about over political beliefs? I don't know if that's happened since 2020. I've, no, no, I've not seen it, but maybe you have, being facetious. How about uh, scientific beliefs? <clears throat> COVID. Any, anybody seen any of that? Do we ever have battle lines drawn over the recent virus? Of, COVID? of course. How about pastors we prefer, authors we favor, Christian bands and music we like the most, how much money we spend on hobbies and things versus the other hobbies and things that you should spend money on, because those are the ones I like and the ones you like aren't very, that's a waste of money. Am I right here? Do we ever draw lines like this in the church? All the time, all the time. And yet, let me ask you, does any of that have to do with true biblical greatness? No, it doesn't. Not at all. So the question we have to ask ourselves, and I would encourage you to really think about this over the next week, what man-made lines have you drawn to inflate your greatness by deflating the greatness in others? And if you think the answer is none, then I can promise you, you are lacking in self-awareness and you're just not looking hard enough. Uh, Because if you were open and honest about this and examined yourself, I think you'd be surprised by what you found. So, like I said, spend some time this week in your quiet time, in the word, in prayer, asking God to reveal to you the ways that you might be doing this, the ways that you might be drawing mad lines by which you judge others to inflate your own self-righteousness. And one more point before I move on. If you're really serious about doing this, ask some of your closest friends some of your closest Christian friends, how they think you might be doing this, because I'll bet you money they will see things that you don't. For example, uh, and be honest about this, in the past few minutes, as I've been describing this, has anybody had somebody else come to their mind who does this? Yep. (laughs) When I was putting this sermon together, I was like, stop it, this is about you, Zach, not everybody else. That's the point, though. We all instinctively see the speck in everybody else's eye, but the log that's in our own, it just hangs there, and we're bumping into people with it. We don't see it. We're blinded to it. And so we need others to help point it out to us. The truth is we all instinctively draw lines of greatness over man-made issues, things that we find important. But those are not things that God finds important. Do you want to know something else about this? No? Well, too bad. I'm going to tell you anyways. What these lines are, are man-made, I'm going to tell you this, we also, so, so we draw lines with man-made lines, but the thing I'm going to tell you is we also draw lines of greatness with God's lines in ways that we shouldn't, okay? So think about this with me for just a minute here. And well, these lines that, that are God-made lines, we absolutely must follow them, right? Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal. You don't do it, Period. Okay, So it's not that the lines are bad, they're not man-made, they're God-made. But here's the point. While these lines are certainly meant to be obeyed, these lines were never meant to be markers. Follow with me here. These lines were never meant to be markers that we use on others to determine our greatness by comparison. Does that one sting a little bit? It should, because we all do this. That's not what God's lines are for. We don't take God's lines and be like, oh, those are good things, and go around and look at everybody else and be like, wow, you really don't measure up. I am so great. That's not what they're for. They're to be obeyed, yes, but they're not for that. And yet, what do we tend to do with God's lines? We take them, and yes, they are good. Yes, they should be followed. And we start using them to measure the lack of greatness in others. And why? Not to help them, Not to bring glory to God, but to help us and bring glory to us. Let me ask you, is Christianity supposed to be about serving us or serving God? You can answer this one. God, right? That wasn't very hard. Uh, It's God, and yet our natural tendency is to twist and warp the things of God into worshiping and serving ourselves. How? By achieving a greatness of our own. A greatness that we've built. A greatness that we have achieved. And church, tell me now, what sin is that? Idolatry? Pride? Those are not good sins to be playing with, aren't they? No. You know, if you really think about this, even at a slightly deep level, you're going to be, like I was, just kind of just perplexed and shocked at how wretched and sin-fallen the human heart is is a mess. It's almost like the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can understand it? Well, that is what it is. We have hearts that will take anything and everything and twist those things, even good things, into bad things that are basically inflation pumps for our pride balloon. That's what we do with it. And yet, none of that, Jesus says, is true greatness. Not even a little bit. It's actually the opposite of greatness. And so that approach to greatness is not compatible at all with Christianity. For within Christianity, true greatness is not found upon the path of external superiority, outward superiority. It's not founded upon that, is it? It's found upon internal inferiority, internal inferiority before all others, which leads us to our second point. The true greatness understands the character of greatness, but it also understands the path to greatness. Look with me at verse two and three. In calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, look what he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say you won't thrive in the kingdom of heaven there. This is, this is a litmus test for whether you go to heaven or hell is what he's talking about. Right? It's pretty straightforward. Now, the past several weeks and the last couple chapters of Matthew, what have we seen? Well, it's basically been a greatest fails compilation of the disciples. Like, you see Peter, he has you know, this, this remarkable moment where he's like, I, you know, you're the son of the living God, and then it's face plant after face plant after face plant. Like, it's a mess, which should give us you know, hope because we do the same thing. And yet, in chapter 18, what do we find again here in these first four verses? Look at verse 1. The disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that doesn't look quite so bad at first glance, does it? It doesn't until you read Luke and Mark's account of this whole situation. And then it's just like, oh boy, you guys, wow, you really hit the deck hard there. In those accounts, we find the disciples were actually arguing over who was the greatness. Oh, you think you're so great because that whole Mount of Transfiguration thing, don't you? Well, don't you know Jesus brought you three up there because you guys were the weakest and you needed to see that more than the rest of us? Oh, yeah, well, you know what? Here's the other thing you don't realize is that I walked on water. Oh, oh did you, Peter? remember what happened at the end of that? You sank, huh? Yeah, how great are you? Now, the reason Jesus called you a rock, you know like that sort of stuff. You can imagine the conversations they were probably having here. in Mark 's account, Jesus comes up to them and he says, "Hey, boys, what are you, you talking about there back there on the road when we were when we were walking? And what do they do? start shuffling their feet, looking down. You know they don 't want to answer them. And Jesus isn't answering, asking this question because he needs information. He's asking it because he knows and he's going to make a point and teach them a lesson they're never going to forget. And so they sit there like the little kid with crumbs all over their chest when they've just been asked where the cookies went. They don't want to answer it. They've been busted. And yet Jesus' response is quite remarkable, is it not? He doesn't go ballistic on them. He doesn't say, are you serious? I'm like this far away from the cross and I'm out of here and you've got to run this church. What is wrong with you? When are you idiots going to get it? He doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't. He is patient, he is kind, he is gentle with them and uses this opportunity to teach them an important truth. And so Jesus then calls over a child and he says, truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Become like children. What what, what does that mean? Like I have to become a child? Like to be honest, I'm I'm spent on macaroni. I don't want it anymore. You know, I enjoy the naps, but as far as this whole child thing, I don't think I'm there. Well, what is he talking about? What does this mean I have to turn and become like a child? What Jesus is saying here is that to become great, what kind of greatness? Great enough for heaven, right? That, that's what they're talking about. How do you be, That's what he's talking about. How do you become great enough for heaven? His point is simple. You have to become weak, not strong. It, heaven's not for the strong. It's not for the spiritually resilient, the morally Righteous and you know, all that that's not what it's for. Look at children, think about this for a minute. They're not going to win any weightlifting contests, are they? (laughs) Not even close. They're weak, they are not prone to pride, hypocrisy, or selfish ambition. Don't get me wrong, they're little sinners and they need Jesus, no questions about it. But they aren't little sinners in the exact ways that they grow up to be, not really, not fully i got to tell you, I've never had a little kid show up in my office or send me an email all upset that their, famous, their favorite song wasn't sang at church. It's never happened. Uh, I've never had them get angry because I disagreed with them on some minor theological difference. They're just like, whatever, you know, kuna matata. Uh, it's not a big deal to them. And why? Because they're not all about the ambition thing yet. They tend to be more humble. They tend to be more teachable. They tend to be more modest and more lowly. And that's Jesus' point here when he says become like children. Can you imagine a young child, you know, think about this for a minute, a young child putting together a resume for a job application, what that would look like? At the top, they write their name, probably with a letter missing, maybe one of them backwards, or they just missed a letter entirely. Then for job qualifications, we find that they put down more than they probably should have. <laughs> and then for references, uh, they, they list one, and there's no phone at all, you know? <laughs> and why not? Because little kids don't care about that stuff. When you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, what do over 50% of them say? I want to be an artist, and Why? Because they love the color. That's what I wanted to do. And I had to find out the hard way. I have not an artistic bone in my body. You can ask my mom about it. (sighs) They're not seeking greatness in external achievements. No little kid is going to come up to you when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up. And they say, you know, I was thinking about this. I want to get a job at a prestigious law firm. Then people will respect me. Nobody. They don't do that. Okay? They don't care about that. They're not seeking greatness in external achievements like they grow up to do. They just don't. And so Jesus' illustration, when he brings the child in, he sets them before him. It's actually an illustration of what Jesus said back in Matthew 5. Here's what he said. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does that mean, inherit the earth? That's another way of talking about they will inherit the kingdom, right? Because we don't, this is one of the, I think, I've been thinking about this this last week. I think one of the biggest confusions that evangelicals have about heaven is when we die, when we move into the church, it's not going off to this pie in the sky, Is it? No, it's we are on this earth for all of eternity, earth reborn with physical bodies doing physical things. Okay, so that's what it's talking about. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Do you realize how radical this is? The entire world will tell you that the way up is up and the way down is down. And that's what makes sense to us. Do you want to get the promotion? You got to work hard. You got to get the raise. You got to score the goal. You got to win the game. You got to strive for these things. And you know what we do out of that thinking? We take that concept and we apply it to our relationship with God. We apply it to the entrance fee into heaven. Do you want to be great though in God's eyes? Obey the rules, pray the prayers. Read the books, do the good things, and try not to do too many of those bad things. That's it. Great work. Now you're getting it. Keep on. Up and up we go, and we'll eventually make it. But what does Jesus say about all that? Look at verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus warns us that's not how greatness works before God. And if that's how we view it, not only will we not be great, we'll not enter heaven at all. We'll be damned. That's what he's saying. We'll be completely rejected as an almighty, all-powerful, holy God cast us into an eternal hell. Do you realize just how revolutionary this kind of thinking is when it comes to religion? It's unlike any religion out there. And I've looked at a lot of them. There's nothing like this. Jesus is telling us, hear hear this part, don't, don't, zoned out, zone in. Jesus is telling us that the way up isn't up. How do we go up? We go down. That's radical. No, who's going to make this stuff up? And so if you want a greatness worthy of entering heaven, you have to humble yourself, you have to become meek as a child. Lowly as a child, it means when you turn in your resume for heaven, you put your name at the top, and then under past experience, you know what you list there? Sins. That's it. That's the only thing that goes on past experience. Not your church history, not your Bible reading, not your prayer, not your moral progress, nothing. You put your sin under past experience. That's what you bring to the table. And boy, is that a humbling and difficult horse pill to swallow having to admit that there is nothing within you that is great enough for the kingdom of heaven. However, once we swallow that horse pill, which we call the gospel, what do we find? We find relief from the medicine that was inside of it. And what is that medicine in it? It's the shed blood of Jesus. It's the grace of God, which is the only thing that can make the worthless sinners like us great before God. When it comes to men who tried to achieve greatness through achievement, I think the chiefest of them all is probably the Apostle Paul. Right? Like, I mean, He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This guy had it down to a science when it came to moral progress. And here's what he came to see after he swallowed the horse pill called the gospel. Philippians 3, I'll read this for us. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. And look what he says next. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from obedience, right? From, comes from the external things. But a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that when it comes to our spiritual resume, under qualifications, you know what we're putting? The perfect holiness of Jesus. Under references, we put the son of the living God. And under experience, after we list our sin, we then put the death and resurrection of God's one and only beloved son. And when we put all that, you know what happens with our resume? it's never rejected because christ is never rejected by his father and so we are turning in christ's resume that's the entrance fee to heaven and we do so by grace through faith in him and when we do that you know what we become before god in his eyes greater than great we absolutely become great and so i asked you this morning are you tired of the rat race Are you tired of trying to achieve a greatness of your own, which comes in the human form of tearing others down to build yourself up? Are you exhausted of it all, of trying to outpace everybody around you when you're not even faster than most of them? If so, then stop. Give up on trying to achieve a righteousness of your own and instead, in humility, grab on to the righteousness of Christ, which comes by faith. And you know what's going to happen when you do? you're going to realize that the way up was always down. James 4.10 says this, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Once you come to understand this truth, and only then will you be able to go on and walk powerfully in greatness. Until you get this, it's not going to work. Which leads us to our final point. True greatness understands the character of greatness, it understands the path of greatness, and third and finally, the walk of greatness. Look at verse 4. Humble yourselves like this child. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 3, which is what we looked at for point 2, Jesus told us how we get into heaven, and here, what is he telling us? He's telling us how to be great in heaven, which means there's levels of greatness in heaven. Right? See how I did some basic logic there? That's what that means. There's levels of greatness in heaven. How to be great in heaven. Or we might say, and this fits with numerous other passages, I'm not making this up, how to gain heavenly rewards. And how do we do that? By continuing to walk the path of greatness, which is simply a path of humility. And make no mistake about this. That is our biggest challenge as Christians. It is to remember that the path of greatness isn't what we do, but what Christ has done. Remembering that our worth is his worth, not ours. Remembering that the path up is down. It's humility. It's lowliness. And oh, how often we forget this. How often we forget that this is the case. We easily forget that greatness, and hear me when I say this, greatness is not found in what you achieve, but in what you receive. I'll say that again. Greatness is not found in what you achieve, but in what you receive. And when we forget this simple but basic Jesus loves me truth, the very truth that made us a Christian in the first place, it has devastating consequences upon us and others. It it can destroy churches and has destroyed churches. We already talked about several of the legalistic examples of how and where this kind of stuff shows up. But what we didn't discuss is how this robs us of our joy. And make no mistake, forgetting this truth will rob you of your joy as a child of God. It absolutely will. See, if I find my worth in what I achieve instead of what I receive, you know what ministry becomes? A joyless talent show. I don't care if you're on the worship team, if you're the pastor, if you're the Sunday school teacher, whatever. It becomes a joyless talent show. Think about it. What's the purpose of all ministry? Is it to worship us or God? It's to worship God. It's to bring glory to his name by joyfully serving him. We always pray for the glory of God and the good of the saints, right? That's the purpose of ministry. But when ministry becomes an achievement-driven talent show... Where I find my joy in the smiles and the applause of my fellow man and not the smile and applause of God, do you know what happens? I gravitate towards the ministries that get more coverage. I gravitate towards the ministries that are in the kind of spotlight I think they should be in. Maybe not on the stage because, you know, public speaking is terrifying. But there's a whole lot of other ministries that are much more public, much more where people will see what you're doing and pay you lip service for it. There absolutely are. But how about the ones that don't? The ones that nobody ever hears about, probably doesn't even know about. Well, I'm not going near those, and why not? Because those are down. I'm, I'm, I'm going up here. I've got to achieve some stuff, you know? Greatness. Those ministries, those lowly ones that nobody knows about, those aren't going to help me achieve greatness. So is it any wonder that most churches can't, peep, can't get people to do the low frills ministries? They don't want to do it. The stuff that really gets noticed. Whether that's cleaning the church. Visiting widows and shut-ins that, you know, they're not going around telling everybody, you know, so-and-so came to see me. They're shut in. Making food for someone who's sick. Uh, yeah, you're going to have, they'll, they'll notice and be thankful, but that's, that's the extent of how that's typically going to go. Serving in the nursery. Changing a light bulb. Like, there's tons of examples that things that need to get done in a church that are lowly. And yet... Sometimes churches, it's like pulling teeth to get people to do it. And why? Well, I'm afraid to say, I think it's because we have forgotten the truth that greatness is not found in what you achieve, but what you receive. If our ministry service is for Christ, if it's for his smile that we seek, if that's our heart's chiefest desire, then the less flashy areas of ministry aren't going to be less flashy to us, are they? And why not? Because our omniscient God sees all things, does he not? And so whether I serve on the worship team or I serve by preaching or some public ministry, that gets the same level of spotlight before the one audience that matters as these other ones that the rest of you all don't see. If we're honest about it, we must realize we all struggle to remember this truth. We all struggle to remember it. Let's talk about that worship team one one more time before we move on. If I find my self worth or my greatness is found in what I achieve and not what I receive, uh, then I might be on the worship team helping lead the congregation in worship, but I'm not trying to lead them in worship of God, am I? I'm trying to lead them in worship of myself, which is idolatry. Uh, And instead of humbling myself and using my gifts joyfully for the glory of God, I've twisted them into demonic tools for the worship of the self. This is a struggle. It absolutely is. You ask anybody who has any ounce of self-awareness who has been in a public spotlight in ministry, it absolutely is a temptation. Do you know what makes preaching so difficult? It's not learning to properly study and exegete a text. It's just not, okay? Like, you can teach a monkey to exegete Scripture, right? Some churches actually do that, but they forgot to teach the monkey to exegete, sadly. But... But you know what I'm saying? Like it's not that difficult to teach somebody to exegete a passage. Like there's so much tools out there. Like it's it's you could teach people to do it. The hard part of preaching isn't exegesis. It's preventing yourself from turning it into a talent show. Because the temptation is that you will do well so that people will praise you for it to inflate your ego. That's one side of the ditch. What's the other side? If you don't do well uh, and people grumble and don't praise you, you allow it to deflate your ego. You see this? Like There's two, there's two uh, ditches when it comes to this. You can, if you get the praise of others through your preaching, it builds you up and inflates your ego. But if you don't, then it deflates your ego and self-esteem and you're a miserable Eeyore going around, you know, nobody likes me. Maybe I should go get a different job. You know, that sort of thing. And you know what's ridiculous about both of those ditches? Where does the level of my talent as a preacher come from? God. 1 Corinthians 4.7 says this, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? When we are successful, whether it be preaching or on the worship team or teaching a Sunday school class, whatever, what happens is the little king Nebuchadnezzar's in our hearts start to whisper to us just how great we are. But when we fail, there's another whisper in our hearts, and it's the little Elijah's that are whispering how doom and gloom everything is, how everything's failure, everything's miserable. It starts to sound like the book of Ecclesiastes vanity, vanity, everything's vanity. But both of these voices come from a heart that has forgotten that greatness is not found in what you achieve. It's simply found in what you receive. And what we have received is the complete and total unmerited grace and love of God. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And when we have the love of Christ, which comes freely and fully by grace through faith in Him, if I have that, and no offense to any of all here, but why on earth would I give two hoots about what a single person in this room thinks of me? Why? Why care whether it's good or bad? I have the eternal gaze and smile of the omnipotent God. Do you see what true biblical humility is? It's not weakness. It's not sniveling, self-loathing, masochism, focusing on your weaknesses. No, humility is recognition. As one song puts it, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or, shame, or skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. And once we recognize those truths, that is in those verses, we can go on to sing the chorus of that song which says, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in, no, in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. So how about you? Is Christ your greatest treasure? Is he the wellspring of your soul? Do you trust in him and no other? Are you satisfied in him alone? For if you do, you will be truly great in God's eyes. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the truths that are in it, deep truths, profound truths, truths that none of us could see without your revelation given to us. So Father, we just ask that Today, if there's one here who has been trying to enter heaven through their achievements, I pray, Father, that they would give up on that, that they would recognize it's not what we achieve, but what we receive, and that comes only because of the shed blood of Jesus. Father, I pray for the Christian here today who's struggling to walk the path of humility, who's struggling to remember that the path to greatness is a path of lowliness. And so, Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to find our satisfaction, to find our identity, to find our worth in Christ, not in the self. There is no worth in the self, for there is only shame. Help us not to delude ourselves. Help us not to be distracted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.